So um, before we moved into this building, uh, the plan was to have three uh, Sundays focused around Christmas, last week, this week, and next week. Um, last week, obviously, didn't. So I'm going to give you a double sermon this week to make up for it. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, but we are we are going to we are going to focus on on the Christmas story. So um, just before we we get going, I'd just like a show of hands, please, um, from you. Put your hand up if you. Yeah, thank you. Good, good. Yeah, great. Oh dear, it's panto season, isn't it? Um, <laughs> So, amen. Right. Um, now, show of hands for who of you decided exactly where you were going to be born? No, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Um, and it's certainly not something we're in control of, isn't it? Is it when we're born? And uh, yesterday, a bit of family news, I got to meet my new niece. She was born on the 3rd of December, and uh, she's very small and cute, and um, she was due on the 27th of November, and so took a bit of a while coming, but when she decided that she was finally ready to come out, she, she came, but she had no control over where my brother and sister-in-law would be located when she was born, and... Uh, and that's in contrast to the way a lot of us try and live the rest of our lives, where we like to be in control of what we wear, who we're friends with, where we live, what job we have, that kind of thing. We like to be in control of those sorts of things. But being the place where you are born is not something that you're in control of. And so this morning, we're actually going to look at a prophecy that was given 700 years before Jesus was born that identified exactly where he would be born. And it's quite amazing, I think, that Jesus, born as this little child, he had no kind of say in it. I know he's sovereign and, and all that. But in the sense of him being born as a baby, he had no say over the place where he would be born. And yet it was as it was laid down 700 years before. And given what we just talked about before the, the break about these glimpses of Jesus, this is one of those glimpses. Um, in fact, this is almost like a full shot of Jesus, not just a glimpse of Jesus in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you could turn to the book of Micah and chapter 5. Now Micah is a, quite a short book. You'll find it a little bit after Isaiah and Ezekiel and those kind of longer prophets. Um, but if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. I'm going to read the first five verses of Micah chapter 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They've laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite us, the judge of Israel on the, on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel." His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain. 
Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we're now fully into this Advent, this Christmas season, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus, born as a baby into the human race in order to save us. We thank you for the wonder of that. And we pray that even this morning, as we look at this passage of your word, would you speak to us? Would you shine a fresh light on these these stories that we know so well? And Father, I pray that that throughout today and the rest of this Christmas season, we would encounter you in a new way. This, this baby of Bethlehem, this child in a manger, may we know you better. And may we not lose sight of what Christmas is really all about. Amen. So we're going to look at these few verses today, and we'll we'll also dip into some uh, famous New Testament passages as well. Uh, but I want to make three points this morning, um, and they're all about the way God acts. So the first is that this is a God who orchestrates history. As we've said, Jesus couldn't really fix where he was going to be born. He was a child. He was dependent on the location of Mary, particularly, and Mary and Joseph to an extent. And the fact that he ended up in being born in Bethlehem is quite remarkable. Um, if we could look through to Luke chapter 2, and I'll read some of these Christmas verses, the start of Luke chapter 2, which say this. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So his parents, Jesus' parents, were from Nazareth, and because this census was called, they had to travel off to their hometown, which was where the father would be, the husband the man of the house, the head of the household, it would be back to his hometown. And when they were there, I guess some sort of, you know, ticking thing happened where they registered how many people were there and what ages and all that kind of thing. And so they head off there. And uh, and then verse 6 says this, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So let's just think about that for a moment. This is the first census that was taken while Caesar Augustus was emperor. And it forced Joseph, who was engaged to Mary, although he was kind of wavering over that, but he decided to go with it. And so the two of them traveled off to Bethlehem at just that right point. So that while they were there during the days of the census, Jesus could be born. That is a God who orchestrates the events of history and puts things into place. God knows about these things. He maneuvers people into the right position. He sets up a chain of events so that what he says will come to pass. We're just going to hear from Darren, who's uh, got a testimony to share with us. So I'll let him say a bit more. 
Well, there's loads of twists and turns to this, but uh, I'll stick uh, to the, the story as much as I can. But um, about six years ago, we think, uh, we were having coffee, me and Ruth and Kate Millington were having coffee um, after the service, and uh, we were chatting away, and she just said, oh, you know what, I had a really strange dream. I had a dream that Mary went to Alderbrook School. I saw her in the Alderbrook uniform. And uh, which, as you know, is quite a distinctive uniform. Um, it's, it's purple. So um, I was, we were like, oh, that's really funny. You know, kind of laugh. Not, didn't We didn't dismiss it, but we kind of laughed like, oh, that's a bit crazy, you know. And um, we just thought, oh, wow, interesting dream, a bit crazy, you know, at the time. So the context of this is that we were living in um, the Smith's Wood area of Solihull. So we were, we were, and, they, and our kids, so Mary was six at the time, around six years old at the time. And um, as you know, Alderbrook is uh, secondary school. So um, that was a bit crazy. Um, and also, we, so we were in Smith's Ward and there was no, uh, not even a, a hint that we would be around this area um, for Mary to go to that school. Um, and so um, there was just no possibility whatsoever. I just want to labour that point. And, um, and so... And so um, we just kind of thought, oh, that's funny, and we kind of rationalised it. Well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a solid whole school because because Kate went to that school. Maybe she thought, maybe she's. Uh, identifying that school with Solihull and so maybe it's a Solihull school that uh, you know, and we thought maybe closer you know, central Solihull um, but even still we're thinking there's no way we'd be able to get this you know we're never going to be able to move this close uh, for her to go there it's crazy but you know we'll just you know, we'll keep it open. And so over the years, we always revisited this dream um, of Mary going to, to Alderbrook. We, uh, every now and then, oh, do you remember that dream? Oh, yeah, wasn't that funny? And then, um, and, uh, and then, uh, and then uh, over the years, we got Mary into a school in uh, Coleshill, because that's where we were living at the time in North, North Warwickshire. So she was going to a secondary school in Coles, in Coleshill. And, um, and, every now and then keep visiting this dream and then so you can imagine our surprise when we were uh, really generously offered to uh, live at um, Stephen Hannah's house and um, where Alderbrook is only five minutes down by by car and so we were like oh do you remember that dream and suddenly it wasn't it wasn't ha <laughs> that was quite funny isn't it suddenly it was like ah do you remember that dream? Oh yeah. And then, uh, um, and then we told Mary about the dream, and she was like, "Really?" And uh, and and that was so, so. These things it started to get more of a reality. But then we realised that actually uh, the catch we were in the catchment area of Tudor Grange, which is a bit weird because they both Tudor Grange and Aldbrook are on the same site, but our catchment area was Tudor Grange. Plus, there were no, uh, and we wanted to get Mary out. It, from here to Colesville is quite a bit of a bit of a drive, and so we want to get Mary closer. But there were no openings in any schools, so Tudor Grange, Aldbrook, uh, Langley, there was just no openings at all. There no, they weren't taking any um, extra uh, students on. And so, long story short, we applied anyway. So we applied for Tudor Grange first, I think, or maybe it was Aldbrook, thinking you know it was going to end up being Tudor Grange anyway. Um, and we were told, well. 
handing your application and you know to see what happens so long story short um two weeks ago now um we got a letter to say that mary's been accepted to alderbrook <laughs> so uh, what became like a, an impossibility for us at the time has just um yeah has opened up possibilities so. yeah i think applause So, not quite a 700-year uh, word from God that uh, the Kennedys had to sit on, but nonetheless, something that looked pretty unlikely was actually spoken by God, and God brings about unlikely happenings. Whether it's a school place when you live nowhere near that school, and yet God manoeuvres you so that you live close to that school and a place opens up at just the right time. Or whether it's the birth of the Son of God in a place where he shouldn't really have been born, but was born anyway. God makes things happen. This is a God who orchestrates history. And the second thing I want to talk about is that this is a God who brings greatness out of insignificance. I don't know whether you noticed, but this start of verse 2, which is where the, the kind of traditional Christmas reading starts. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. What that means is that Bethlehem was too small a place to even be listed amongst the important places within Judah. And... Uh, and I think sometimes our carols can give the wrong impression here. So we sing, once in royal David city. It's not really what was going on here. Or, oh, little town of Bethlehem. That's a bit closer. I think really, oh, small hamlet of Bethlehem would probably be more accurate. And the reason I give for that is if you look at Joshua chapter 15, when the, the country was being divided up, and they were listing all the towns that were being put into each tribe. So this is your portion, Judah. This is your portion, Benjamin. This is what you get, Simeon. If you read through the 115 towns that were named that were going to be in the region of Judah, you won't find the name of Bethlehem there. It wasn't in the top 115 important places in Judah. It was too little to be among the clans of Judah wasn't important enough. In fact, it's just kind of caught up in the catch-all of such and such a city and its villages. And that's where you would find Bethlehem, one of the surrounding villages of a more important place. And so for Micah to say, but you, Bethlehem, a king will come out of you. Well, okay, there are echoes of David there, but actually the importance of Bethlehem is that it wasn't really that important. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 2, we read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they ended up in Jerusalem because they knew a king was being born. And where are kings born? They're born in the major cities. Where's the major city? It's Jerusalem. So we'll go there and we'll say to Herod, you're the king. You've probably got something to do with the new king that's been born. Where is he? 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And what does he do? He gathers together the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he says to them, where is the Messiah going to be born? And so they root around in their old scrolls. And they say to the king, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come forth a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That was Micah's prophecy. And that was the evidence that the scribes and and, uh, chief priests brought to Herod to say that's where the king's going to be born. It's not happening here. It's happening in Bethlehem. But so Bethlehem was a surprise, not only to the Magi who traveled from the east, but to Herod, who was the king of the land and should have known what was going to happen, actually. If he'd known his Old Testament. But isn't the whole of the Christmas story punctuated with surprises like this? Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple, been trying to conceive children for years and years and years. To no avail. Suddenly, you're going to have a baby. Call call him John. He's going to prepare the way. Or you've got Mary, the unmarried virgin, probably a fairly young girl, teenager. You're going to conceive the son of God. That's quite surprising. (laughs) Or you've got Mary and Joseph ending up in some sort of stable. That's quite an unusual venue for a hospital. And you've got the manger, which is an unlikely crib. You've got stars and you've got angels who are fairly unusual birth announcers. This is where the king's going to be born. You've got shepherds. Quite unlikely to have as the first visitors as they trudge in from being in the fields. And they're the first people to see the new baby. And then you've got these magi. Again, I mean, what a mix of visitors rocking up to the crib. You've got these smelly shepherds and then you've got these eastern magicians. Hi, we're here to look after your child. It's a bit strange. And the whole of the Christmas story is like this. Surprise after surprise after surprise. The unlikely events happening. And Bethlehem as a venue is amongst those. Well, doesn't that give us hope? Doesn't it give us hope that God might use us? A group of relatively ordinary people who live in a smallish town on the edge of Birmingham, in the middle of England. That he might even use us. If he can use stars and angels and shepherds and cribs and stables and elderly barren couples and unmarried virgins, then... Surely he can use us. And so I love it when Paul writes in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were mighty. But God's chosen the foolish. And he's chosen the weak. And he's chosen the things that are not. 
Why? So that we can display his priorities, not the world's priorities. We can display his priorities to the world and we've got nothing to boast about. It's all glory to him when he does use us. And so I'd like you to think about this sentence and insert your own name instead of Bethlehem and insert your own circumstance instead of clans of Judah, unless any of you are of a clan of Judah. But as for you, whoever you are, too little, too insignificant, too unimportant, too often overlooked in your family or your work context or your um, sports teams, you're always the last one lined up at the wall to be chosen for the football team. Whatever it is, out of you could come greatness when God gets a hold of you. Because this is what God specializes in. He brings and calls greatness out of insignificance. And I think there's something in this for us as a church. That our history as a church has not been a straightforward path. And yet, he will call greatness out of us who were seen as insignificant. And the Christmas story can build faith in us that he will do that. So he's a God who orchestrates history. He's a God who brings greatness out of insignificance. And he's the God who provides peace. Micah's prophecy, after this opening, or this this verse about Bethlehem being too small, goes on to describe the king who will be born. And so we read in verse 2, That his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. I love the fact that Micah kind of goes, so actually this is really obvious because this king's been around forever. That's the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem. So he talks about that. Then he goes on to talk about the return and reuniting of Israel in verse 3. The fact that he will return the sons of Israel, reunite the nation. He then goes on and talks in verse 4 about the fact that this, this leader will rise up and shepherd the nation. That he will have a reliance on God as the source of his strength. The fact that this king will be great. Not only great, but great to the ends of the earth. That's how big his reputation will be. And I think that as Micah's original hearers were listening to this, So this is 700 years before Jesus is born. It's only 300 years after David was around. And as they'd have been listening to this description, they'd have been thinking, this sounds like David. This sounds like our great King David. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem, wasn't he? I know he lived in Jerusalem later on, but he was born in Bethlehem. And he was, he was the one who had our golden era as a nation. He was the one who really established us as a, as a nation within that Middle Eastern strip there on the edge of the, the Mediterranean Sea. He was the model king. He was the man after God's own heart. He was the, the warrior king who conquered with his army, who kind of pushed out the boundaries of the nation. 
the one who really established things. And also, he was the one who reigned over a united nation. Later on, it got all fragmented and a bit messed up. But David, he was the real deal. He's the model. And I'm pretty sure that as Micah was saying this, they were saying, wow, there's another David coming. There's going to be a David who again will bring us greatness as a nation. But then Micah says something different. The start of verse five. He says, this one will be our peace. I think that would have surprised his listeners. Might not surprise us, but I think it would have surprised his listeners. Why? Well, because towards at the end of his life, David wanted to build a temple. And God said to him, you've done well to want to build a temple, but you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it because you're a man of blood. You've shed too much blood. You're a king of war. And after you will come a son and he will be someone who reigns in peace and he will be allowed to build the temple. And so the similarity in this prophecy with David ends at this point, I think. Because this new king, although he will look like David in so many ways, this one will be our peace. And we live in a world, don't we, that needs peace. We just have to turn on our TV screens to know that we live in a world that needs peace. We're less than two weeks after our parliament debated bombing Syria and decided to go ahead and do it. Less than two weeks since that couple went into their own Christmas party and killed 14 of their work colleagues in California. We're just days since 87 people were massacred in that tiny African nation of Burundi, which sadly seems to be slipping again towards civil war, less than a decade after a 12-long civil war, 12-year-long civil war. 2015 has, has been a year bookended by atrocities in Paris with Charlie Hebdo last January and the Bataclan Theatre just a few weeks ago. It's been a year when... Time and time again, week after week, we hear stories coming from the states of shootings, of gun control issues, of police treating young black men appallingly. And now them saying, no, we're not allowing these people in. We're not allowing these people in. It's not peace. It's a year when we've seen pictures of thousands and thousands of people clambering onto these rubbishy little boats trying to get across the sea to somewhere safe, somewhere where there's, there's a, a glimmer of hope of peace rather than their war-savaged land that they come from. A year when we see bodies washed up on beaches, a year when we see wars, when we see destructions, when we see protests, when we see, when we see people, people leaving bombs outside tourist temples in Thailand. This is not a world where there is peace at the moment. Jesus This one will be our peace. That's what scripture says. And we're not seeing that at the moment. It is a world that needs peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about this a bit more with a a phrase which has a, 
a, a real echo of this verse in Micah chapter 5. Ephesians 2, I'll just read a couple of verses. Um, actually, I might read a few more verses because we're okay for time. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Notice the echo of Micah there. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's talking here about Jews and Gentiles being united um, through Christ. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the father. Peace, peace through Jesus. And I love the way that that Paul again and again echoes this whole world scope of the gospel. Jews and Gentiles coming together in peace. And doesn't it underline for us thinking about Christmas that this child is no insignificant baby. No local hero. This is the one who will reconcile the whole world to himself. This is the one through whom all nations and all peoples in the world will be blessed. This baby born in Bethlehem is the most significant person ever. This is the one who will affect the whole world. And how will he do it? He will do it through the blood of the cross. And we cannot, we cannot look at the Christmas crib without thinking about the Easter cross. We can't do it. We can't consider Bethlehem without Calvary in view. We can't do it because the one leads to the other. This Jesus, this peace, this peace of the world only comes through the cross. He himself is our peace. And note that it's not that he will just bring peace. Not that he will just usher in a little bit of peace. Not that he will demonstrate a peaceful lifestyle. Not even that he will reign with eternal peace. All those things are true and good and accurate, but it's more than that. It's not even that he himself is peace, although he is. It's that he himself is our peace. Jesus is the reason that we can have peace. And it's more than an inner calm. It's more than a tranquility. It's more than a hot cup of chocolate, cup of hot chocolate and your slippers in the winter. That's not peace. This is reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God. This is a dealing with everything that stands in the way of full relationship with him. 
And we need to tuck ourselves into Christ, hide ourselves in him. And peace is the message of Christmas. It really is. What did the angels sing to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst men. The advent of the saviour means that we now have access to peace. And it can only happen through Jesus. This one will be our peace, Micah said. This one will be our peace. And so I think that that gives us or should give us faith to pray for peace. And that's how I'd like us to respond. This is a world that needs peace. And at Christmas, we remember that that has become possible because he has come to earth. And because of Easter, we can now pray that that will be that will happen. The advance of his kingdom means the advance of peace.